Nous allons poursuivre la belle et noble aventure française. Nous allons transmettre le flambeau aux prochaines générations. Aidez-moi, rejoignez-moi, dressez-vous. Nous les Français, nous avons toujours triomphé de tout. Vive la République et surtout, vive la France and welcome to The Bunker. I'm Ros Taylor. Taking back sovereignty, no more meddling judges, lower taxes. We're used to these promises in the UK now. But how about zero immigration? The right to fondle a woman's backside without fear of prosecution? A return to the glory days of General de Gaulle? That's what Eric Zemmour and his new party, Reconquest, is promising. Who is he and how is he different from the familiar face of the far right in France, the Le Pen family? With me to talk about one of the most controversial presidential candidates ever to have stood in France is John Litchfield, veteran French correspondent. Welcome back to the bunker, John. I'm very pleased to be here, Ross. Tell us a bit about some more. He's been well known as a right-wing intellectual for a while. He had a column in the mainstream French newspaper, Le Figaro. But like most French intellectuals, he's been relatively unknown on this side of the channel. Has he always been a polemicist? No, not always. He he started his career as a as a political correspondent for Le Figaro and then for other publications. He's become a more powerful figure maybe in the last two or three years through being given a kind of bully pulpit on one of the French 24-hour news channels, one called CNews, which has deliberately made a decision, whether politically or commercially motivated, to try and be a kind of uh, French Fox News and their sort of striker, their sort of lead figure was, was Zemmour, and he was given his own show more daily, in which he pontificated on politics, on anything going on. He had people alongside with him, but they weren't allowed to contradict him. He was allowed to shout at them. They were not allowed to shout at him. Very Fox News, in a way. And that has certainly built up his reputation, his notoriety in France. He's also the author of two or three books. Most recent of one came out in late August, uh, and he's been using as a sort of campaign tool, he's been sort of promoting the book in theory the last couple of months when actually he's been campaigning. And last weekend he did finally formal, last week, and then this uh, yesterday he did formally enter the campaign. And he's been describing himself as a Cassandra in the past, if you like, someone who's warning of the dangers ahead, a siren. But now he's decided to move into politics. He's also on trial in France for incitement to racial hatred. Tell us about that. Well, he's not actually on trial at the moment. He has two convictions for incitement to racial hatred. He has been tried several times for having said things which were allegedly and on two occasions were proved to be in contravention of France's laws on hate speech essentially on both occasions uh, attacking Islam as such rather than radical Islam. So yeah, he is he is a criminal in that sense. He is a convicted racist, something he denies. He denies he's a racist, he denies he's a misogynist, but it's difficult to square that with many of the things he has said in the past and he's saying as part of his campaign. His misogyny is not something that people write about so much uh, or report so much maybe outside France, but it's it's a big part of Zemmour's shtick, his appeal, is to say that somehow women have taken over far too much, that women in politics is somehow against nature, which is interesting given that now two of the leading people against him in this campaign are women. He is a very strange um, mixture of blokish 
attitudes, blokish racist attitudes, and, and kind of a, what I would call a kind of fake intellectualism in which he rewrites French history to suit his version of events. Yes, if you watch his launch video, it's basically footage of him sitting at a desk reading from an essay, very sort of trying to ape General de Gaulle, I think, there. And then it's intercut with lots of footage of France in the 1950s and 60s, and also of him surrounded by adoring young people now wearing Zemmour 2022 t-shirts. It's nostalgic, isn't it? I mean, a lot of his appeal is to an idea of a France that he claims has disappeared. Yes, it's a sort of, it's forward to the past, but a past that's of his invention to a large extent. Zemmour, if you read all of Zemmour, and if you listen to what he says, essentially he says that there's been a conspiracy against France and Frenchness that goes back certainly to the defeat of Napoleon in, in 1815, and that France essentially had a right to be the dominant nation, dominant culture in the world. It would have been a far better thing for the world had that happened, but has been pushed out of that sort of the right to, to dominate culturally by the wicked Anglo-Saxons over the years. That France probably fought on the wrong side in the First World War, he argued on one occasion, because that, that allowed uh, the British and Americans to dominate the world ever since, and that France would have done better in a German-dominated Europe. And also he rewrites the history more recently of the Second World War, where he, even though he is of Jewish origin himself, he defends the uh, collaborationist Vichy regime and says that it was not as bad for Jews as people say, that it tried to defend some Jews, French-born Jews, for which there's very little evidence or no evidence, whatever. Now, why does he do all that? It's a very strange thing. None of that is, is kind of campaign material, you might argue. It might be something that a sort of marginal intellectual would argue. But why make that part of a political campaign in 2022? This is one of the, the, the kind of curiosities of Zemmour, that none of these things seem to be things that would matter to ordinary people very much, but they're very much part of the, the way he sees the world. He essentially thinks all of that, that sort of conspiracy against France, still happening today, that somehow... Uh, there is a conspiracy, a global conspiracy by the global elites to replace the white people of France with brown and black people through immigration and destroy French culture. Yeah, he's particularly exercised by what he sees as the Islamification of France, isn't he? I mean, there's there's a lot of, he wants to preserve our daughters, as he puts it, from the veil. What practical form does that opposition take? I mean, if we were in a Zamor-led France... What would he want to do? Well, one of the things he's proposed, Ross, is that there should no longer be, it should be the French state. This is a man who's supposed to be liberal and wants to take the state out of people's lives in, in some respects. But in other respects, he wants the state to be a sort of bullying state, an authoritarian state. And one of the things he would say is that all uh, babies born in France would have to have French Christian names or first names, I suppose he would say, rather than Christian names and that no one would be allowed to be called Rashida or, or Mohammed anymore. They would all have to be Eric or Jean-Francois or Amélie. Now, there used to be a law in France, which is not so long ago that it was abolished, that said that, but it was never really applied very, very rigorously. And so there have been French-born Mohammeds or Zinedines um, born for many years. So that would be an extraordinary thing to do to in a country which has a, a, a Muslim minority or a minority of people of, of Muslim who originate in Muslim states, I suppose one should put it, of about five or six million people. The figures are always somewhat disputed in France because it's not allowed under French law to keep 
statistics based on race or religion. To try and impose such a law would be an extraordinarily authoritarian and brutal thing to do in many ways. I know there is, yes, that he would ban wearing the full-length uh, uh, burqas, which are already banned in France, but he would ban the, the veil entirely. The, ban, the French call it the veil, we call it the headscarf. Uh, we, they would ban all, all um, religious headscarves from, from French streets um, or from, from wearing them at all. At the moment, you're not allowed to wear them in state schools or in state places, but you are absolutely allowed to wear them in, in public. He, he would get rid of that. There would be a very, very aggressive policy of what he would describe as forced assimilation or encouraging people to assimilate into being French. He says he's not racist because he has no objection to people because he himself is of North African Jewish origin. He has no objection to French people of different races. He has an objection to French people who are not fully culturally assimilated as French. Does he want to leave the EU? Aha! Well, he's he's a kind of weaselly figure, Zemmour. He has recognised that if you campaign... In a French election, saying you want to leave the EU, it's a destructive thing for your campaign. And that proves to be the case for Marine Le Pen last time when she had a very muddled um, policy which seemed to involve leaving the EU without leaving it. So he, in a sense, is trying to do the same. He is saying, no, I would not accept the EU. Uh, I would want to try and change it from the inside if I was elected. But a lot of the policies that he pushes forward would be essentially policies that would destroy the EU as it exists. For instance, he wants France to reclaim its right to have its own laws superior to that of European laws, not just the constitution, but that French law should be made superior to European law in all cases. That, as you know, is the core of what the European Union is. You couldn't have a European Union, you couldn't have a single market in which each national state was, had the right to impose its own laws. So he's relying there on the extraordinary ignorance that exists in France, I have to say, about the way the European Union works and the way European Union law works. And if you ask an ordinary French person on the street whether they think that European law should be superior to French law, they would probably say, no, not at all, not realising it has been since, when, 1958. Uh, that's somewhat arguable because it's not absolutely clear in the Treaty of Rome that that's the case, although it's implied. But certainly it's absolutely the, the key at the centre of the European Union. So he is not, to answer your question more simply, he is not campaigning for France to leave the EU, but he's essentially campaigning for France to be another Hungary, to be within the EU but trying to uh, reject European law from the inside. Speaking of Marine Le Pen, we're familiar with what used to be the Front National, is now the Rassemblement National, as a political force in France. How, given that they're both on the far right, how is Zemmour different from the Le Pen tradition? They certainly overlap, Rose. Clearly they do. And he, um, until his polling started to fall recently, he had been taking, he came from about 0% to 19% in a couple of months, which is quite an extraordinary achievement. And if you look at where those percentage, this is in terms of first round voting attentions in the election next year, I would say just over half of those percentage points were coming from uh, from Marine Le Pen's vote, and she fell accordingly. Some of them were coming from the centre-right. Some of people would seem to be just people who'd been disaffected from French politics for a long time and were encouraged by the Zemmour offer and didn't, uh, and therefore had declared themselves ready to vote for him. So there is an overlap, but the, I think the essential difference, I think one of the essential differences is that 
the core of Le Pen's electorate now, and this was true somewhat when her father was in charge of the then Front National, become much more so under Marine, is that the core of her electorate is provincial, blue-collar, what we used to call working-class, people that would have voted communist or socialist in years gone by in France, and now disaffected and somewhat xenophobic in their opinions and therefore attracted to the message of Marine Le Pen, which is in some ways, without wanting to make a kind of historical point, it's a nationalist and socialist message, Le Pen's message. She isn't just saying that France, we should have a policy of France first. She is saying that. But she, a lot of her policies are essentially interventionist in favour of state intervention to help people uh, and to um, protect jobs and to subsidise industries. So she, in many ways, is quite left-wing in the, in the sort of policies she promotes at the same time as being extremely nationalist and right-wing in her attitude to immigration or crime or Islam. He, Zamor, his appeal is essentially to, I think, to a much more educated, better off bourgeois electorate. If you look at the people that turn up for his campaign meetings or the, the campaign meeting yesterday and the people who support him, they're quite young. They're often people from very well educated, very wealthy backgrounds and uh, more metropolitan based. I don't have the impression, and I live a lot of the time out in Normandy, I don't have the impression that Zamor is very popular in rural, provincial, small town France in the way that Marine Le Pen is. You know, in my own little um, commune here in Normandy, 30% of the vote usually goes to Marine Le Pen, and I'm the immigrant in the commune, you know. So I don't think that Zamor appeals to appeals to sort of blue-collar blue provincial. Some he does, but not as many as, as to Le Pen. So there is a difference between the two electorates in that sense. But the slightly scary thing, Roger, if you add those two electorates together, you know, it's about I don't know, 30, 31% of, of the electorate is now, one would say, far right in one way or another in France. And, and you could say that's not entirely new because even when Macron crushed Le Pen in 2017 in the second round, there were still 34% of people who voted for Le Pen. So there is an electorate of about a third out there that takes a very identitarian, nationalist, xenophobic point of view, split between people who would not previously have voted on the left uh, and people who would previously probably have voted on the, on the hard right or the centre-right. I think what we're seeing here is a sort of breaking of the mould, a redrawing of the lines of French politics. Although I don't think Zemmour will win this time, I don't think there's any chance of him being the president. What we're watching is part of a much bigger upheaval transformation of French politics, which might reach something more of a, of a dangerous, in my opinion, or, or calamitous conclusion in the next presidential election in 2027 than, than next year. And one of the reasons why the overlap between Zemmour and Le Pen is potentially important and what they stand for is because of the way the French presidential elections work, because there are two rounds, aren't there? So you have every candidate stands in the first and then the top two fight it out in the second. And we've just got a, a new definite entrant for the Republicans, Valérie Pécresse, how is the race looking? I mean, Zemmour has been, was up, as you say, 19%. He seems to have fallen back a little now, hasn't he? Yes. Even before that extraordinary video that you mentioned in his uh, formal first campaign speech yesterday, he had peaked and started to fall. He reached, as I said, about 18%, 19% in some polls. 
He's now back down averaging more 13, 14%. Whether that he will continue to fall or whether he'll get now a bit of a bounce from having entered the campaign will be interesting to see in the next raft of polls, which are probably due in the next couple of days. Interestingly, uh, when he went down, Marine Le Pen went up a bit. They are a little bit on a seesaw, but for the reasons I was saying, they are, it isn't as quite as simple as that because the two electorates are not identical. And what has somewhat changed the calculation, as you say, is that the, the traditional French centre-right, the, the, the family of French politics, which goes back to de Gaulle, goes through Chirac, Sarkozy, now called Les Républicains, but have had lots of names over the years, finally elected its candidate. The winner was something of a surprise, as you say, a woman who's well-known. She's the president of the greater Paris region, Ile-de-France, Valérie Pécresse. She was minister, relatively junior minister in Sarkozy governments. She is intelligent, fluent, a uh, very likable woman, quite right-wing on, on social issues. She, she was once very fiercely anti-gay marriage. She has moderated her position on that. She's pro-European, pro-business, many ways not very different from Macron, which uh, means that she has a chance, you might say, to bring back some of the centre-right votes which have gone to Macron. She has a chance maybe to appeal to some of the harder-right votes that have gone to Zemmour. But she also risks being squeezed between those two things. It's going to be very difficult for her to appeal to both, both to the Zemmourists and the Le Penists. And her party, Les Républicains, when I was talking just now about how the, the boundaries in French politics were changing and that the blocks were shifting around and it hadn't yet sort of come to a, a final halt and, and will perhaps resolve itself during this election and the next, the frontier now between the sort of the more democratic, the more pro-European, moderate centre-right uh, tradition and that of a kind of much more authoritarian, racist, xenophobic, anti-European right goes down not quite down the middle of Pécresse's party, Les Républicains, but she got 60% of the vote in the second round on Saturday and uh, a man that is almost indistinguishable from Zemmour and Le Pen in many of his views, Eric Ciotti, parliamentarian for Nice, got 40%. And he is going to be, I think, a very difficult um, and complicated character for her to be able to control in the next several weeks and months. And it's going to be very difficult for her, I think, to get the whatever it would be what what would how many percentage would she need to get in the second round we don't know but it's probably going to be 18 or 19 percent at the moment the polls only give her eight nine ten percent it's not impossible that she can get up that high but it's going to be very difficult simply for that reason that she is torn between those two sides of her own political party her political camp i think that if she does get in the second round it's not impossible that she will she would be an extremely dangerous opponent for macron if macron is the other candidate who gets through which seems likely i don't macron don't think macron can be beaten by le pen i don't think macron can be beaten by zemmour if if he gets in the second round with either of those one or other of those far right candidates he will win maybe not by the crushing uh, figures of 66-34, I think, that he did last time, but fairly comfortably. If he's in the second round against Pécresse, he could lose. It could be very, very close. It would be impossible to call, I think, until very close to the result. And the simple reason for that, Ros, is an extraordinary reason that the left, where is the left? You know, we're we talking about all these people. Well, where is the French left? The French left also has about 30% of the vote, but they're split between seven different candidates, not none of whom is at the moment shown getting more than 9 or 
in the first round next April, and therefore getting nowhere near getting in the second round. But when it gets to the second round, that 30% block of left-wing and green votes will decide the election. If it's Macron versus the far right, they won't want to vote again for Macron. Many of them are saying they won't vote again for Macron, but in the end, enough will for him to defeat the far right just because they would not stomach having a Zemmour or a Le Pen as president. But if it was Macron versus Pécresse in the second round, they might not like Pécresse very much. In fact, many of them don't like her, especially because of her views on on gay marriage and, and uh, very socially conservative views. But they, they've come to dislike or hate, in many cases, Macron so much that they would say, well, we'll at least get rid of Macron, then we can hate Pécresse for the next five years as well. So I think she would get a lot of left-wing votes on that basis. She would get quite a lot of hard-right votes on the basis that she would be better than Macron, at least. So she could beat Macron, but can she get into a position where she does beat Macron? That's a difficult and completely different question. Is Macron going to have to tweak his message to take into account all this evident discontent we're seeing? Because from the outside, France looks like a fairly prosperous country. It looks like a country that's not, you know, no one has thrived during COVID, but it hasn't fallen apart. And yet it's still subject to these massive internal pressures. And the issues that we saw around the Gilets Jaunes two or three years ago have clearly not gone away. How is Macron adapting his message if he is to take account of this? Well, you said that's a very good point, Ross. I think he's he, there. There's a lot of recalculation going on as we speak. I imagine in the Elysee Palace because they weren't expecting Pécresse to emerge as, as their centre-right opponent. They were thinking it would be more likely Michel Barnier or uh, Manuel Xavier Bertrand, who was the president of the Northern French region. They felt they could deal with them. I think they feel that Pécresse is more of a problem for them simply because she is a woman and, and very att- attractive personality, and therefore. By being a woman alone, she is a new face, she is a new prospect, and therefore could take away a lot of votes that Macron has at the moment from the centre, that used to be the centre-right. Against that, they're all her problems have been torn two ways in, in her own political family. So yes, up to a point, I, I think Macron will be looking again at how he can answer all this. It will, a lot will depend on what happens with the, there is quite a surge of, of cases going on in France already based on, on Delta variant of of COVID. If Omicron comes in, that might plunge France into another phase of the pandemic just before the election next year, which would again, what effect would that have? Would that mean that people say Macron's promise to sort of steer us through this pandemic has proved to be false, therefore we will vote against him? Or will they say, better hold on to nurse for fear of something worse, he's been not too bad, we don't want to change presence in the middle of another uh, terrible um, uh, phase of of COVID-19. So it's difficult to know how all that will play out. I don't think they can calculate how all that will play out at the moment. The economy is booming at the moment. It's likely to be a 7% increase this year, which is, I think, alongside Britain, the highest of any of the big countries in Europe. Uh, Overall, France, I think, has weathered COVID pretty well, but not everyone accepts or agrees with that. You know, France is a very anti- vax country, the fact that 90% of the population, sorry, adult population has been vaccinated is an extraordinary achievement for Macron. But a lot of people feel that they were forced into it. And they, you know, that they they're now regretful of having been vaccinated, even though obviously, that's one of the reasons why France has weathered the pandemic quite well. I mean, France is a very, very difficult country to govern. I mean, you know, if Macron wins next April, he will be the first president to be re-elected since 2002. But beyond that, it will be the first time a government has been directly 
endorsed or confirmed by the electorate since, by my calculation, 1978. It's complicated to explain why that is because of the system there used to be of, of presidential and parliamentary terms not being in phase, which they now are. The default position in France is usually to get rid of who's ever in power, is basically what I'm saying. And it would, in, especially in the circumstances of a very, very difficult five years overall with the Gilles Jones, as you say, and now with COVID, for Macron to be re-elected would be an extraordinary achievement. I still think it's more likely he will be than he won't be, but um, the situation's changing all the time. The permanent state of disaffection, which now seems to be heightened, I suppose you would describe it. Thanks so much for talking to me, John. You're welcome. It's been a pleasure. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast. If you did, you can help us to reach more people by forwarding the episode link to three friends or tweet it to them with the hashtag BunkerUp. Get them to send us their feedback. It's really useful. If you enjoy The Bunker, you can help us keep going by backing us on the crowdfunder Patreon. Search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out how to get the show early and without ads, plus lots of extra benefits. I'm Ros Taylor. Thanks for listening. The Bunker Daily was presented by Ros Taylor. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofronievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs>